All right. Let's, uh, let's find our spots and, and say a prayer and get started. Let us pray. Be merciful to us, O God. Be merciful to us, for in you our souls take refuge. In the shadow of your wings we take refuge till the storms pass by. We cry out to you, O God Most High, the God who fulfills his purpose and keeps his promises. Send from heaven and save us. Grant us all this in your faithfulness. Amen. All right, so I can't figure out what's going on. Sorry, we can't listen to Alec McCowan today. I know you all came just to hear Alec McCowan. So, and I can't do a British accent, so you're going to have to just put up with it from the ESV. I could read, I could read it from the, new, from the King James Version. That would be a bit closer. But, um, so what kind of questions do you have? What kind of questions do you have? Yeah, Leah. Yeah. Yeah. But then a couple of times he does. Uh, there's one man he says, go tell your family. Yeah. So he has to say, go tell everybody. And so I'm just really confused. It seems like, like it's pointed out very specifically, like, don't tell, like, you tell. Like, right. Yeah. So, I mean, the, that is a question that scholars have asked for a long time. It's in, it, Mark has this notion that's the, we, we call it the messianic secret. And it's at times it's just really it's perplexing. Why um, is Jesus keeping keeping such secrets? One of the reasons is because when people go and they tell about him, they tell the wrong thing. They don't tell the whole story. So they are you know just astounded that he can heal the deaf and the blind and the mute and raise you know make lepers uh, clean and uh, the paralyzed can make them walk. But it, uh, what you, one thing you notice is that along the way, early on we had the story of the paralytic. His friends brought him to Jesus. And you remember the first thing that Jesus did, they, lowered, they, they removed the roof and they lowered him down on the bed. And um, they had to do that because there were so many people in the house, right? Everybody's crowded around. And um, the first thing that Jesus says to the guy, what's the first thing that he says? Your sins are forgiven, right? Which, on the one hand, seems really unfeeling, right? That Jesus would, um, here's this guy who has this apparent a dreadful problem that needs to be solved. This is his immediate need. He can't walk, right? Um, but Jesus first says to him, your sins are forgiven. Um, and, no, and nobody understands it. And they start to accuse him of blasphemy. And he says, okay, just to make, to make it clear that I actually have the authority to do this, I'm going to tell him to get up and walk, and he does it. But the point is that telling the paralytic to get up and walk is not the whole story. In fact, if you only tell that part of the story, you all you have is a miracle worker. You have some sort of a magician. Um, and... All along the way, Jesus is combating the, the false ideas that they have about the Messiah. So, um, he, I, this is my take on it. He really faces a dilemma, Jesus does, as he makes his way through Galilee and Judea. Because, because he is God, compassionate and merciful, when he sees need, he cannot help but act. He cannot help it. I mean, just, so imagine you seeing your child suffering. What are you going to do? You're going you're to drop everything and help your, your child. Um, he can't help it. At the same time, helping his child is going to cause all kinds of, put up, put up all kinds of obstacles for him getting to where he's going, right? Getting to Jerusalem. And, I mean, along the way, um, people try to make him king. They, uh, they, they 
he can't get a, a moment's rest because they want him to heal their sick and uh, cure their diseases. Um, so he's conflicted in his purposes. And that, I mean, I think that that tells you something about the character of God and how, and how really challenging it is um, to navigate this careful path between wanting, to, um, wanting us to be happy and well and at the same time knowing that we have something bigger that needs to be solved, which is, the, which is sin. So uh, that was more of an answer perhaps than you expected. But um, I think it's a really interesting question, and it, it's really important for us to reflect on it, because it tells us something also about how we should relate to other people. I mean, we're called to compassion, and as your heart, um, it, you have a human heart for one thing, and it's, it's inhumane when you see need not to reply with compassion. But as Christians, you have a special measure of compassion because you're energized by the Holy Spirit, right? You have hearts that have been warmed and softened and made live by the Holy Spirit. And so when you see need, you also are moved to compassion. But the trouble is often when you see conflicting needs, right? Uh, One of the ways, so just a really sort of crass example, one of the ways we see this often here at church is when folks come in um, with immediate needs, homeless people, uh, people who, you know, they're, they're short on their rent or what have you. And um, there is a real, you know, sort of um, well-established uh, set of principles in the, in the world of charity that oftentimes meeting the immediate need is not really the most important, not the most helpful thing. That's really tough to do. There's nothing harder than having somebody knock at the door and saying to them, we can't help you or we're not going to help you. Oftentimes we say we can't help you because it's too hard to say we're not going to help you. Um, you say it sometimes because you don't want to enable. That's one way. That's absolutely right. That's one way. And, and enabling, I mean, that's a, that's a helpful term. Um, but it looks, it, the, the ways that can manifest are in, d- very diverse. So um, anyway, that's, that's a really hard thing. Um, and I, I, think that, I think that if you sort of take stock, you'll see that in your own life as well. That you, you see and are moved to compassion by various needs um, and you have the difficult task as um, people who've been given the Holy Spirit to, to discern how to get to the root, the root of the problem. You actually know what the root of all the problems is, right? Um, but you can't say to somebody who's knocking at the door, you know what, I know what your real problem is, is that you're a sinner, right? That doesn't, that doesn't uh, go over so well. Um, but, sometimes, but sometimes then again, maybe that is what needs to be said. Um, okay, what other questions do you have? So we've made our way, um, so the, the question about the Messianic secret is really interesting because as we've made our way up, to, up through Mark chapter 10, um, Jesus has been very secretive, but now Mark chapter 11, we get this, really, this turning point. A di- another turning point is sort of in terms of how the narrative progresses chronologically. Mark 11 chapter 1, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. No more secrets, right? No more secrets. It's all out in the open. Um, there are some things to notice about how that happens, though. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 25. That's what we're going to try and get through today. Mark 11, 1 through 25. And this really all goes together. Um, it's all of one piece. But I want you to pay attention to a couple things. One is, um, as Jesus is revealed, as he, as he becomes this really public and publicly acknowledged figure, what happens, what's the result of that? Uh, What are the people expecting, and what is he giving them? Um, And then also think about his actions um, and ask the question, why does he do the things he does? Can you you tell why he does the things he does? Okay, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem 
to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Sorry, pause there for a second. On your handout, you, got, you see the handout? I think it's helpful to see the map, just to put this in perspective. So you can see near the, the right side of the green section, just north of the Dead Sea, there's Jericho. That's where Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus last week. And then you can see the road leading down to Jerusalem, or leading up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. And Bethany and Bethphage, let's see, I can't, I don't know precisely what the scale there is. I mean, they're not far. They're not far from Jerusalem, a couple of miles, okay? So he's, but he, we're given these um, really strong geographical notices, and the time is also going to become really important. So where he is and when he is there becomes really, really important in the story now, Okay. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Sorry, buddy. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your father... Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, I'm going to grab some markers here so I can draw. Um, Let's do this first. Uh, Do you have any questions? Anything that came up in that that made you wonder? Yes, Holly. It's just not fair. 
to curse the fig tree when it's not time. <laughs> uh, that actually, I think, I think that that's, yeah, he was angry. <laughs> Grab a Snickers. No, um, so, uh, yeah, I think, um, I think that that actually is a really good answer. The, when Jesus is around, it's time, for, it's time for bearing fruit. Whenever Jesus is around, it's time for bearing fruit. Um, yeah, it seems patently unfair and cruel to the fig tree. Um, but if anybody's, I mean, so one, one way to say it is, if Jesus wasn't, didn't spare even the fig tree, which didn't bear fruit, though it wasn't the season, how will he regard us if we don't bear fruit when he's around? Um, which is a stern sort of warning. But then take a look at the context here. Hang on one second. Take a look at the context here. Um, we have what's called a Markin sandwich. You see how there's the fig tree in verses 12 through 14, and then the fig tree comes back later, verses 20, verse 20, right? 20 and 21. Mark sandwiches things together that are mutually interpretive. So the fig tree is telling us something about what's going on in the middle of the sandwich, the meat of the sandwich, right? So what's the fig tree really about? It's not about trees failing to bear fruit when he's around. It's about faith. In particular, what's, what's the, the object of his um, curse or his wrath in the, the, sam- the meat of the sandwich? Right. You go to the temple, and the people in the temple weren't doing what are. Yeah. There. And so that's right. So so the fig tree is stands for stands for the temple, okay? The worship of the people of Israel. There's um, there's a lot of important ways to think about this. In chapter twelve, you'll get this next time, maybe. Um, somebody comes up to Jesus and says, tries to test him, saying, or it actually doesn't say tries to test him, but asks him. What are the greatest commandments? And Jesus replies. And they have this wonderful exchange at the end of which Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. But the fellow says this really important thing. He says, yeah, loving God and loving your neighbor, those are the two greatest commandments and they are better than all of the sacrifices, all of the sacrifices we could offer. Um, Which has been what Jesus, what God has been saying to the people of Israel all along, right? So they take every institution that he gives them all of the signs of his faithfulness, like circumcision, and they turn it into this thing all of its own. And so God says, okay, fine, I told you to circumcise yourselves, good, but I want you to have circumcised hearts, okay? It's not just about your flesh, it's about your heart, okay? He says, yeah, I told you to sacrifice animals, but it was so that you would always have hearts of gratitude towards me. So I don't care, so that your offerings, he says at one point, I can't remember where he says this, your offerings... Um, have become a stench to me. You're, the smell of the burning incense and the burned animals have become a stench to me because your hearts are like Esau's or like uh, Cain's hearts, not offering them out of your first fruits, but uh, just sort of doing it grudgingly. The same thing is here, right? Um, and and the, the lesson of the fig tree then is uh, you're without excuse, right? The fig tree didn't have an excuse, even though it wasn't in season. The fig tree had no excuse, you, uh, worshipers in the temple, you, the temple institution, you, the people of Israel, who have all of God's gifts, for whom it is always the season, you have no excuse, right? And so he's really um, prophesying in a way, 
the destruction of the temple, right? He says, you know, um, I will tear down, tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Because, of course, there's a new temple. What's the new temple in the New Testament? Jesus himself, right? So that we can worship in purity and truth and, and not on this mountain or that mountain. Um, it's, so Jesus, there's, a, there's a lot going on here. Jesus is engaging in these prof, so prophetic parabolic actions. This is, there's a lot of precedent that for this in the um, history of the prophets in Israel. So take, for example, Hosea. You, I think you know some things about Hosea. What, was, what did God tell Hosea to do? Go marry a prostitute, right? And it wasn't about, I mean, it wasn't about saving her from prostitution, although he certainly did that, except then she goes back to it, right? Um, so he says, marry this prostitute and then name your kids some horrible things. No mercy and not my people. Those are going to be the, your kids' names. That's what God tells to Hosea, says to Hosea. Name your kids those names. And then he says, your wife, Gomer, is going to go back to her prostitution, and I want you to go and buy her back. I want you to redeem her back. So, you know, the prophetic life, to be, Hose- to be a prophet, to be Hosea, it, it, not a fun time, I don't think, um, but the point is it's not about him, right? It's not about him. It's not about Gomer. It's not about his poor kids um, because what he's prophesying is God's relationship to the people of Israel who've been unfaithful to him um, and yet for whom he will, he'll, he'll render judgment, right? He's going to say, no more mercy. You're not my people. And they go into exile. But then out of exile, he buys them back, redeems them back. And the same thing, I mean, then, and, and then this is the great thing about prophecy, is that in the Old Testament, prophecy has sort of these incremental fulfillments. So this happens. They're redeemed out of exile when they come back into, the, into Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. But even that is just a partial fulfillment because it's not really fulfilled, fully fulfilled, until Jesus comes into the temple and, uh, and buys back the people on the cross, redeems the people on the cross. Um, so Jesus is entering into this tradition. There's all kinds of other great examples. I just um, uh, was talking with some friends about the prophetic acts. There's some really bizarre ones. Like Isaiah had to wander around uh, naked for three years. God told him to do that. That's tough to be a prophet, right? And then, uh, then Ezekiel had to lie down. He, so Ezekiel was supposed to take a brick and um, inscribe the name Jerusalem, write the name Jerusalem. And he was put it on the ground, and he was supposed to lay on his left side for 390 days. And then he was supposed to lay on his right side for 40 days. And then, <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 4, you sh- uh, he was supposed to eat a meal cooked over human feces. Yeah, right. Not fun to be a prophet. He objects. He objects. He says, I've never eaten anything unclean before, or anything that's come into contact, contact with stuff that's unclean. And so God acquiesces and says, okay, you can eat it cooked over cow dung instead of human dung, right? But, but, but you see, I mean, so, so picture now, think about the parallel here. There's actually a point to this. I'm not just delighting in the, the, the grossness of it. Um, imagine you're the people of Israel and you see Ezekiel doing these things or Hosea doing these things or Isaiah or Jeremiah um, God tells Jeremiah to go and buy a field, even though the, there's the, the enemies are coming and the, the land is going to be destroyed. God says, go and buy a field. 
And everybody's like, what's the, why would you buy a field right now? Um, and he does it anyways. Uh, because the, the whole point is, you're going to come back to this land and inherit this land. Um, so, so imagine what it's like to see crazy people doing these crazy things and, ha- and hear them say, nonetheless, the words of the Lord. So you, you know what God's word is. You, you're the people of Israel. You have his word in your hearts and on your lips and in the commandments and in the law. And you see these people um, doing these strange things, outlandish, unbelievable things. Um, and the question is, are you going to listen to their exhortation? Are you going to listen to their rebuke? Um, and some do. Many don't, but some do. It's the same thing now. We've got Jesus, who's proven himself to be the Messiah. And he comes and does this outlandish thing, right? Um, Peter doesn't seem to be too bothered by it, like the injustice of cursing the fig tree. But you all are. Everybody who reads the story is like, that tree didn't deserve it, right? Um, and, which is the whole point, right? The, Jesus, who's proven himself to be a true prophet, now does something that makes us step back and take stock and ch- adjust our expectations. Aaron. Well, I guess I'm, I don't know if this is true or not. So is it, is it partly like shock value? Like, is God like doing it for to get people's attention? Like the dumb thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, that, I, think that, I think that God does that. Yeah, he knows what we're like. We need some shock value every now and again. Um, and, that, and that's really what it is. I mean, there is, it is, so complacency, complacency is the um, vice all along the way. And, the only, and sometimes the only thing that gets you out of complacency is something that, you know, running up against a wall or seeing something that creates just incredible cognitive dissonance. This doesn't make any sense, right? Now, I've, now my choices are either ignore, just put that to the side, or try to understand how this, how this is working on me or what this is supposed to do to me. And that's, I mean, that's what Jesus is doing, right? Um, he, does it, he does it even to the end, right? So the Messiah dying on the cross, that's not about shock value, but it is shocking, Right? That the Messiah, whom everybody has been waiting for, who's going to save the people of Israel. I mean, and this is, okay, so think about shock value, right? Because the, the sandwich, in a sense, even Jesus coming into the temple and overturning the tables is a prophetic, parabolic action. He's not actually cleansing the temple, right? That's not what's going to purify the temple, driving out the money changers. And that's not going to purify the temple. But it's this symbolic action um, that is utterly shocking. In fact, you might, you might, draw the parallel to the fig tree in this way. Of course, they needed to have money changers and they needed to have people selling animals. They didn't have to do it in the temple, but they had to for the pilgrims, people who've come from afar, a long way away. You needed to sacrifice clean animals and clean produce, and you couldn't count on, you know, the sheep that you brought with you from, you know, far away being alive when you got to the temple. So they needed to have people there to supply the animals. So in a sense, it is like the fig tree. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. This is necessary. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and Jesus says, we need to start over. You misunderstand what this is all about. Yeah? Okay. What kind of qu- other questions do you have? Yeah, Carol. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. All these people and 
Yeah, I mean, they're there for, what is, I, I should know this uh, more precisely. Maybe for the Passover. Yeah, that's right. They're there, but there's still crowds. Why would they start? It, it is, I mean, so. Writing and, and you, you got some guy riding on a donkey. There's a bit uh, of crowd behavior going on, I think, right? People come out of the woodwork for all kinds of surprising things. You could go, you could, you know, um, get pulled into a protest basically anywhere at any time, right? Easily. Um, and there's, so there's a bit of that going on. Um, but at the same time, so the, the imagery, Jesus riding on a donkey, fulfills their expectations. This is what Solomon did when he was coronated. He rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. They're shouting these verses from Psalm 118, which is a processional psalm. Let's take a look at it real quick. Grab your Bibles there. Um, psalm 118. It's a psalm that they would sing when they were celebrating the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths, which was this time to remember the, the wandering in the wilderness when they had lived in tents, in booths, in tabernacles. Um, and it pointed, it pointed ahead to their hope for a um, you one day being housed by God um, permanently. And so they would sing this psalm as a processional psalm. And in fact, you can hear a bit of the procession in it. So just look, just, um, I'll kind of punctuate it as we go along here. You, a lot of it is really familiar. You'll notice we say these words all the time. Psalm 118, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then you get verses 2, 3, and 4, which is kind of like, you know how we do antiphonal singing in church? Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy. That's what's going on here. Let Israel say, and then the, then the people respond, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And now you have a sense, you have a sense of the exodus coming in the background here, right? Um, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations sur surrounded me. And then here we have some more antiphonal stuff. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among them. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. That's straight out of Exodus. Glad songs of salvation are in the t tents of the righteous. Here's the theme of the tabernacles. So even though they're in the wilderness now, at least they have the sense that the tents are, are the tents of righteousness, tents that God has given them. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Which is, by the way, um, just, it's a, hang on to that verse. That is a, uh, it's a marvelous verse um, that encompasses the substance of the faith. And you, so if you say it, or you remember it, recall it at those times when you're, um, when you feel like you're going to die. I shall not die, but I shall live. It's like, it's like Job saying, um, I know that my Redeemer lives, right? I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And then you can picture now that they're coming into the Temple Mount, 
And they say, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus takes this verse when he tells the story of the wicked tenants, right, who kill the servants that the the vine dresser sends to them, and then they finally kill the son, right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which was how Israel understood themselves too, right? They were... So Jesus, Jesus fulfills what was promised to Israel, that this, this minuscule nation that was you know, abused on every side, that they would become God's uh, people in fulfillment. Jesus says, that happens in me. That happens in me on the cross. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So now you can, you can hear, say, for instance, this is all speculation, but you can imagine people in the temple uh, courtyard saying this of the pilgrims entering into the temple. Blessed is he. Blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Now we're approaching the altar. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. So now if you, if, you, if you start to imagine this applied to Jesus, right? He's coming into Jerusalem, making this procession. The pilgrims are there. They're welcoming him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're having their mind this expectation that the sacrifices are going to continue as before. Jesus disrupts all of that because he's the festal sacrifice that's going to be bound and brought to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Which is the whole point that um, all along the way, Israel has taken the promise of God's steadfast love, and they've aborted it. They've uh, tried to have it their own way. They've tried to um, make the promises intelligible and, and fulfilled right now. This is the story of Abraham, who... When God says you're going to have a son, what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands, right? Um, but the people of Israel, the faithful, all, always say his steadfast love endures forever. Even when it appears that his steadfast love has failed, we say it has endured forever because although the Lord disciplines us severely, he's not given us over to death. He's rescued us from death. Um, so you get... so so. Picture the context now. You've got these people who know this psalm and they sing it every year and they know the, festivi- the festivities and the, um, the significance of it in terms of the life of Israel and they're applying it to Jesus. They're saying it to Jesus as he's coming in. Where they came from, I don't know, people come out of the woodwork for all kinds of things um, and in some sense this is again, this is another prophetic act, right? Um, these people don't know what they're doing. They don't really know what they're doing. But in their ignorance, they are at the same time testifying to what's about to happen. They're bearing witness unknowingly to what's about to happen. The, it's interesting then, what happens next? Okay, so Jesus comes in, he's welcomed with this psalm, the, everything's going great, and then what happens? Particularly verse 11. He leaves, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's sort of striking in how anticlimactic it is, right? There's this throng. They're, they're, I mean, it's like a parade. It's like the fourth. It's like we had the Fourth of July parade, and then um, everything just. Uh, you know, we don't have a dessert social afterwards, right? We just, we all just walk away, right? Um, he comes in, and it's, 
it's this huge party, and he looks around at the temple, and then he goes back where he came from. He goes back to Bethany. Um, you'd expect from this, this coronation, this um, royal procession, you'd expect him to take the throne. But, that's, but, but it's not the throne that he's going to sit on. One of the also is, every time he takes a step back always from his disciples as, as he's looking at them to see their reaction. Yeah, I mean... He, the, the, in, in all of his stories, as, as he and the disciples are moving, are, it seems like he, take, he, he takes that, always takes that moment to step back. Yeah, and I think that you get a sense for how important that is in, in that we're reading now the testimony of the disciples, right? So we see, we, um, we are taught by those moments that Jesus pulls his disciples aside and says to them, and they ask him, what does this mean? And he explains to them, and, you know, they're of little faith just like everybody else, but they're gathered to be teachers of the church, and we get to, we enjoy the direct benefits of that because they wrote it down for us. Yeah, he's very stern with his instructions to him, too, when we go, go to verse 27, when he tells them that whoever, you know, take, you know, whoever tells them they have faith. Yeah, that's right. He's very, very stern. Right. Because they, they I mean, so they, they, even now, they, Peter's kind of perplexed. Like, he's surprised that the fig tree withered. <laughs> Why would you be surprised? Jesus said. He said it's going to happen. Why would you be surprised? Yeah. Um, Okay, what else do you have? What other questions do you have? Yeah, Aaron. Well, maybe it's, maybe it's just taking it out of context, but um, what's a healthy way to read through kind of verse, starting verse 22? Yeah. Having, um, if, you, if you don't doubt, if you believe in your heart, it's like... Yep, I know. Claim it and it's yours. I wrote that in the margin of my Bible. This is, this is the proof text for name it and claim it, right? This is the proof text for name it and claim it. Yeah. Yeah, the trouble is thinking of faith as something that you bring to the table. I just read an article this week about um, this app that you can use to buy Hindu prayers, pujas. So you pay, you pay 15 bucks, and somebody in a temple in India will do, perform the ceremony, and you'll, you'll pray. And, and um, it's a bit like playing the lottery, right? 15 bucks. Who, who knows whether it'll pan out? And in fact, it, for a lot of people, evidently it has panned out because they have a huge subscribership or a, a tremendous amount of use, and 20% of their users are not Hindu. They just, you know, people with 15 bucks that, you know, I'll try this. Um, the interesting thing about it is that in, in the Hindu understanding of prayer, there are a lot of things that have to, get, have to be done properly in order for the prayer to be heard and answered. There's some astro- astrological stuff, like the planet. You have to know the current orientation of the planets and, and address the appropriate one. Um, and the, the ritual has to be done appropriately. That's why you pay a professional to do it, right? Um, and it's very easy for us to think of faith in the same way, right? That Jesus is talking about believing hard enough, which is really, I mean, the only way I can picture that is sort of like really, you know, furrowing my brow and concentrating like, like uh, Peter Pan thinking happy thoughts, right? Or wishing upon a star, right? Um, and so it's helpful to say all of that because that is not what it is. That's not what it is. Um, Jesus isn't saying try harder. 
Because of the, it's, it, what we have to understand is what faith really means. Faith is, in, the, in this context, one way to say it is faith is expecting good things from God and believing that everything he gives you is good. Okay? And tying that to his promises. So if you believe that what God gives you is good the most important stuff you have are the things that he has promised. Everything else, you're not, you don't know whether it's going to be good for you, but you do know the things that he's promised he will give to you, and they'll be good. So the prayer of faith says, of the things God has promised, give that to me, and knows that God is going to give it to you. The things that God has not promised, the prayer of faith says, I think this might be good for me, but I, I don't know everything. And so that prayer is always qualified with your will be done because you know you are going to give me that or something better, right? Um, so it's not, this, it's not a fervor in terms of prayer, but it's understanding our relationship to the will of God. And the important thing there is, so on the one hand, you know, we always do well to qualify our prayers with your will be done. But what's offered here um, is insistence, complete confidence in the things that God has promised to give us, right? So... I mean, uh, God hasn't promised that this mountain will be cast into the sea, right? So um, you can't pray that prayer with confidence because God hasn't promised it. But there are other things you can pray for. For instance, strengthen your faith, right? Um, Wisdom, patience. Those things are things that God promises to you, right? Um, And in everything in the Lord's Prayer, too, that his kingdom will come. That his will is done, right? I mean, that's, think about that. What, the times that we feel like um, things are out of control or that the world is sort of descending, and our worlds are descending into chaos. When we pray, Lord, your will be done, you can pray that with confidence, knowing that it will be done and that God has heard your prayer and is answering it. Um, and, I mean, that, that prayer, James puts it this way. James is really helpful on this, actually. Um, hang on one second. Let me get it right. James talks about, oh boy, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it quickly. What, what verse are we looking at? Yes. James chapter 1, verse 6, yeah. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So faith clings to Jesus' promises. There's this reciprocal relationship between faith and promises. This is, this is one of Luther's most brilliant insights. Faith, so God gives promises and promises are received by faith. These two things go hand in hand. Um, and uh, so you can understand the gospel in that way. Um, God doesn't just come sweeping along and does whatever he wants. He comes and offers to you things and wants you to believe him. Um, So faith and promises go hand in hand, and to not believe or to say, I don't want that promise, I want this promise, or I don't believe that what you're giving to me is something good for me, that's the posture of unbelief. Um, And this is why, so, you know, in some sense, another way to read the lesson about Praying with, un, praying with, you know, believing what you, ask, that what you receive is what you 
that you'll receive what you asked for. In some sense, the lesson is, I don't have that kind of faith. I don't have that kind of sturdy faith. But that doesn't mean that God is unfaithful to his promises, right? God will keep his promises nonetheless. There's another, there's another, um, another verse here where James says, you, you don't receive because you don't ask. And, you don't, and when you do ask, you don't receive because you are asking for the wrong reasons. You're asking to um, satisfy your own desires, to satisfy the desires of your flesh, basically. I wish I could find it. Um, another time, I will share it with you. Oh, no, there it is. Sorry. But he says, he, uh, he, which is another sort of indictment of a lot of our prayers and the sort of wishful thinking, right? So, um, name it and claim it doesn't have anything to do with the reasons why you're asking. It doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't matter why you're asking for what you're asking or what, you're gonna, what you intend to do with the thing that you're asking for, right? So, um, maybe you don't get a million dollars because you would spend it on yourself, right? And... That's clearly not good for anybody. Um, okay. That, so, so I don't know if that helps answer, if that helps explain it at all. Um, it's really important to understand. I mean, it's really, it's really, really hard because it sounds exactly like, I don't know, Joel Osteen. But the, it's really uh, important to understand what faith consists of. Um, and and all, along, all along the way in our lives, we're being shaped. I mean, this is the, the wonderful, amazing thing. And another thing you can pray for with complete confidence. We're being shaped in the image of Jesus so that we want what he wants, right? What a, what a wonderful thing to look forward to, to want what Jesus wants. To have our hearts be so formed by him that we don't want things that are hurtful or uh, harmful to us or selfish or turned inwards, but to only want those things that Jesus wants. That's what's happening to our hearts all our, all our lives long. And that's something you can pray for and something you will receive. Um, because, I mean, <clears throat> to be a Christian is to realize that always getting what you want is not, it's not a good thing. It's not helpful for you. Okay, what other questions do you have? Yeah, Kathy. It doesn't say that it will be done for him right away. That's true. Like it's a magic. Right. Clap my hands. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Just, Yeah. Just hang tight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you heard it here first. Yeah, Aaron. <laughs> No, that's okay. So, so I think I understand. So he believes that he, what he says will come to pass. So if you could be confident that this mountain being thrown into the sea was what God had promised and what he wanted, then your prayer of faith, those words, saying those things, would, it would affect it because God would answer that prayer because this is what he had promised. So it is those words. Um, 
interestingly, I mean, so this is an interesting example because it's another parabolic thing too, right? So what is, maybe this mountain is in fact actually talking about the, um, the temple, Mount Zion, right? Um, and not, you know, this heap of stones here. Um, but it is, I mean, it is, it is literal. It's startlingly literal. Does that make sense? It's startlingly literal. I think that he means, he means what he says. Yeah. Yes, I just expect that this kind of mountain are your sorrows and your burden and your, um, and uh, when you just give it to Jesus, yeah, I mean, you, I, th- I think that, that, that you could interpret, I don't know that that's necessarily what Jesus means here, but that is certainly true because he says, cast all your cares on me, right? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promised it, so you can pray for it with confidence, and it will happen. Yeah, Holly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it is very specific. It's, in fact, it goes like this. I say to you that whoever says to the mountain, this one, be, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Yeah, in fact, that's a really emphatic thing when, when the word is set, as, set aside like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. This is all of one piece, I think. This verse one through twenty-six, twenty-five. It's all um, one one lesson for us, really. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking right now. Why in the world would you ask? I mean, get rid of this mountain. Yeah. This mountain. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's, so just like, I mean, as we're inclined to do, we hear Jesus say these words and we think to ourselves, what do I really want? You know, I've got a genie in a bottle now. What do I really want? When in fact, what Jesus is talking about is something much, much more cosmically significant, right? This, this mountain. And the, there's more context there um, that's really helpful. So he says, what does he say when he's cleansing the temple? Um, <clears throat> My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. There's some just incredible Old Testament background there. When you get a chance, read Isaiah 56. We got our, can you hang out for just a little bit longer? Is that okay? We have the, the child care for a, lot, a while yet. Um, listen to this. So, first of all, Isaiah 56 is where we hear about this, his house being a house of prayer. Just listen to what he says. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So, so already you have this sense of the importance of doing uh, the ritual worship of Israel with pure hearts, with, uh, with clean hands. But then there are these two two folks that are two kinds of folks that are addressed next: the foreigner and the eunuch. So the foreigner is somebody outside of the people of Israel. The eunuch is somebody who is um, not whole in their person, right? And so they're excluded from the worship. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, "The Lord will surely separate me from His people." So let him not say that. 
And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree, which all of a sudden calls to mind the fig tree withering, right? So the fig tree withered because it didn't bear fruit when Jesus was around. But the eunuch, the one who's ritually um, un, you know, not whole, um, is instructed here not to think of himself as a dry tree, not as a withered tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. That's us, by the way. We are, we are the people that Isaiah has prophesied are going to be drawn into the holy temple, those outside of the people of Israel who keep his Sabbath. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Right? So Jesus is coming along in this moment as he's cleansing the temple, and he's, you know, he sees all of these people carrying on these activities that they think are righteous and holy, and he's saying, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. Um, my, my house should be a, a house of prayer for all nations. And what matters is not uh, purely the externals. The externals matter, but they only matter if your heart is, in fact, clean. Right? But then notice, take a look at this, uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. Um, this, this notion about uh, my house being a den of robbers. Jesus is tying all of these things together. Jeremiah gives this great sermon in the temple. Just, he sounds like Jesus. Jesus sounds like Jeremiah. Because the people are trusting in the temple. The fact that the temple stands, they take to mean that God has, is going to show them favor. And Jeremiah's job is to come along and say, disaster is coming because your worship is not pure. You're, you're doing this um, with unclean hearts. You're abusing the widows and the fatherless. You're not showing righteousness and justice in the land. There is no peace, even though the temple stands. This is what he says. Stand, uh, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So, I mean, Jesus is, for for those who have ears to hear, Jesus is Jeremiah, in the flesh, um, come to prophesy destruction to the temple. In order, and and um, uh, because he, you know, all along he's been, he's been declaring his mercy, his steadfast love, and they won't have it. They won't have it. Um, and so he's going to upend the temple. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 
And there's another, there's another interesting, I don't know, you, these, these, these threads are really fascinating, but when else do you hear about a fig tree, in, just in the scope of scripture? When else do you hear about a fig tree? Adam and Eve, right? So there were leaves that they used to cover themselves. No fruit, just the leaves, right? Um, I don't know if, that's, if you can really make a point there, but a, but, a, but a leafy fig tree doesn't do you any good. A fruitful one. Barb. Before we got And, and what she knew, what she believed, was that Jesus, the Son of God, when he sees need, cannot help but have compassion. Yeah. So it's all, it's all Mark. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, it's really a beautiful whole. I mean, Mark is just, um, he's just a craftsman. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's great. And then, and the reason, one of the reasons why is because he's not drawing on just his own insights, but he sees, having been, having, you know, the, the notion is generally that he's writing Peter's gospel, right? So Peter, this is the, he knows what Peter said and heard, um, and so he's writing f- from that point of view. Um, and so he has all of the pieces tied together for us, which is really nice. You were told, you got to write this story in ten words or less. Yeah. It's like, it's so compact. Yeah. I found that too. It was moving. One oh, yeah. Trans- no, that's right. It just goes, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, and so what, there's an interesting thing that happens. It, the time does slow down now. So we had this sort of ambiguous amount of time up until chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, is Sunday of Holy Week. It's Palm Sunday. Verse, on the next morning, right, uh, following day, verse 12, that's Monday. Chapter 12 takes us to Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, I, I had it, let's see, I had it written down. Well, Tuesday, sorry, Tuesday is this long discourse at the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12. Wednesday is the first half of chapter 14. Thursday, the second half of chapter 14. All of 15. That's Friday, the crucifixion. So we, we, now we have the days marked off individually, one at a time. And it's like we were accelerating, right? Immediately, 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 immediately. And now we're going to slow down and look at these days in, in, uh, carefully and slowly. Okay. Anything else? Does somebody else have a hand up? Great. Um, I suspect Pastor Nelson will finish up chapter 11 and begin chapter 12 next week. So come back then. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you.